Why do I get so confused every time? <laughs> Hi, welcome to Wild and Weird. I'm Jenna. And I'm Audrey. You'd think I'd have that down by now on episode 14. But man, there is something where I still get like surprised. You're like, wait, I'm supposed to start this. Yeah, I was like just hanging out. You're like, are you going to say anything, Audrey? Audrey, what are you waiting for? Me. It was me. Yeah. So... Welcome back, guys. Jenna, is there anything new with you these days? Is there anything new with me? I feel like I could meditate on this for like an hour just to find one thing. Last time we were talking about the neighbor's puppy. Oh, yeah. And I feel like maybe you should get another dog. Or a kitty cat. Okay, actually, having a puppy next door is so good for me to not want a puppy. I adore her. Please do not misunderstand me. But I forgot how much energy they have, and she is just a little bit of chaos. Yeah. Which, don't get me wrong, I love chaos. Like, I love dog energy. You have a kitty behind you. I was going to say, speaking of chaos, I think I just heard kitty. Yeah, she walked over so slowly. That's so cute. But I think I could get a cat. I just don't know that I can do the puppy stage again when I already have such a high-energy dog. Yeah, your dog does require a lot. Yeah. Are you going to get another pet for your herd over there? No. Yeah. Two dogs, one cat is enough. It's a lot. And some cows. And you got them all within like a year of each other? Um, Kitty came around in COVID because Brandon was lonely. Mm -hmm. And then both dogs came within six months of us getting married. Right. So, so it was close to a year. Mm -hmm. But Kitty's been there a little longer. Yeah. I could really go for a cat. I mean, I feel like out of all the cats, she's pretty sweet. Mm -hmm. Our parents' cat is the spawn of Satan. <laughs> she's just unavailable. She, like, rents a room in the house and just wants it to be, like, a space to live, not a companionship environment. A hundred percent. Yeah. She knows that food's there. She doesn't need it all the time. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, she's like, don't pet me. Don't touch me. Yeah. Back off. And if you do, I will claw my way down your back. Right? For real. Audrey, mm -hmm. do you want to know my case for today? I do. I still have no idea what yours is. It's always fun to, like, kind of surprise each other with it. Mm -hmm. Today I have a two-parter for you. So we're going to do part Ooh. one today and then part two next week. It is a popular case, but there are so many details to it that I think are fascinating. Today I am covering the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. Oh, I am intrigued. Okay, so first a quick note. In all of the media coverage, this is referred to as the Patty Hearst kidnapping. But fun fact, her full name is Patricia and she actually prefers to be called Patricia. So that's the name that I'll be using. But I just wanted to mention Patty because that's, like, the popular name associated with this case. Okay. All that that makes me think of is there's a Vine and it was Patricia! <laughs> I wish I was on Vine. I've missed out on so much. R.I.P. I know. That's so sad. Or there was a Trixie Mattel and it was um, someone commented something, like, negative on a Twitter thing. And they just replied, Patty, don't start. <sighs> 
I like it. Don't start. Okay. So Patricia Hearst. Yes. Patricia Hearst was born on February 20th in 1954 in California. And she grew up really well off because she was one of William Randolph Hearst's grandchildren. And William Randolph Hearst was super wealthy because he had actually created the largest newspaper, magazine, newsreel, and movie business in the world at the time. Oh, man. Yeah. Her family was crazy wealthy, and she grew up surrounded by this wealth and privilege. Now, this wealth, of course, also comes with political influence, and William Hearst was known to speak out against communism. He had even been elected twice to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives, and once he ran unsuccessfully for president. Oh. Yeah. Like, they were big in the political world and in the super wealthy, like, society. I feel like that sets you up for a lot of people who might be, like, against you, you know? Like, but then you're so rich and wealthy, it doesn't matter to you. Yeah, it comes with a lot of opinions, I feel. Yes. Like, there are a lot of yeah. people who will have opinions about you. But, again, yeah, you're so wealthy, you're just, like, out of everyone else's league. So, what does it even yeah. matter? Their opinions don't really even mean anything to you. Yeah, not necessarily. So this political influence and wealth is thought to be part of the motive behind the kidnapping of Patricia, especially because Patricia's father, Randolph Hearst, was one of several heirs to the Hearst fortune. So obviously that's part of what comes into play in all of this. In 1974, Patricia was 19 years old and she was attending the University of California, Berkeley. She was a sophomore and was studying art history, and at the time, she was living in an apartment in Berkeley with her fiancé, Stephen. Ooh. Yeah, I was like 19 years old. Y'all move quick. Around 9 o'clock in the evening on February 4th, so I am, I am in February, not Valentine's Day. Ooh. It is February. There was a knock on Patricia and Stephen's apartment door. Three armed men burst through the door, surprising Patricia and her fiancé. At first, Patricia and Steve thought that this was a robbery, but it quickly became apparent that these men were there to kidnap Patricia. Fortunately, she was a fighter, and she struggled against the men, and her fiancé Stephen tried to intervene. They also had a neighbor who heard all this commotion, and they actually came to their apartment and also started fighting the men to try and stop them from taking Patricia. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was three on three. But in the end, Stephen and the neighbor were both beaten and tied, and Patricia was blindfolded and carried out of the building. So the story does get even more wild, though, because this was an apartment building. So obviously, a kidnapping was kind of loud, especially when two people got beaten and tied up as part of it. So several mm -hmm. other people and students who were living in the apartment building heard the commotion of the kidnapping, and they also came out to try and help. Several witnesses report that they saw Patricia being carried out of the building as she struggled against the kidnappers, and these neighbors were coming to try and stop the kidnappers, 
But when they saw them, the kidnappers opened fire against all of these other apartment dwellers, and the neighbors were forced to take cover to avoid being shot. So no one, like, chased after them in their car or anything? No, they couldn't get out there because the kidnappers apparently were just, like, fine shooting at civilians. So they're just, like, shooting at all these people who were coming out to try and help Patricia. That would be so scary. You, like, don't know what's going on. Yeah. You just hear some loud commotion. So you walk out your apartment door and you're like, oh, this woman is being kidnapped and now I'm being shot at. Yeah. And what if you're someone in the apartment complex who just didn't even go outside and then all of a sudden there's gunfire? Mm Mm-hmm. Crazy. So ultimately, the kidnappers were able to take Patricia and they placed her in the trunk of a car and drove away. For three days, no one heard anything from the kidnappers. But on the third day, a letter was sent to the Berkeley radio station, which stated that Patricia was being held as a prisoner of war, and a group which called themselves the Symbionese Liberation Army, or the SLA, was claiming credit for the kidnapping. Were the police involved at this point? So they were involved, but not to a huge extent. Because at first there was like really no information about like who had Mm -hmm. taken her. Typically in this kind of thing, there's a ransom note or there's someone who had like conflict with the family. But she was taken because of the political power that her family had. And so these people are like totally unrelated to her or her family. So they didn't have any leads until they actually heard from the kidnappers. Okay. It's honestly a super strange situation. And I have more details on like the role of the police and FBI and all of it. And it's just really strange and unique. So this group that called themselves the Symbionese Liberation Army had claimed credit for the kidnapping, and four days after the kidnapping, the SLA demanded that the Hearst family give food to every needy person from Santa Rosa to Los Angeles. I'm guessing that's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. And it's also a really strange demand in a kidnapping. Yeah, Normally, it's like money. Yeah, usually you want a ransom, some kind of trade. Like, you have really clear demands that benefit you. But it does seem like kind of altruistic in that they wanted to help other people. Mm -hmm. It's a really strange situation. And it left the entire country wondering who this SLA group was and why they had kidnapped a teenager just to ask for food donations. Yeah. For most of this episode, I'm actually going to be going into the background of the SLA because there's so many pieces that play a role in all of this and also so much that happened before the kidnapping. The kidnapping of Patricia Hurst is really what's most publicly known and covered by the media, but I think that there's a lot more to the story, and so I wanted to cover that And then next episode, we'll dive more into the kidnapping and the aftermath of it. Okay. One quick question. Yeah. Was her fiance from like an affluent family as well? Ooh, good question. I would think so, but let's double check. It's time. Google. Google. We need a like theme song. Dude, they really don't talk about Steven. He's just a supporting character. He is. We don't get to know much about him. I would think he's wealthy. 
because they ran in like wealthy circles but i don't actually know okay so i'm not sure sorry to ask the hard questions (laughs) okay so to dive into the background of the sla This was a small American far-left organization that became active in 1973, which was one year before Patricia was kidnapped. And what's interesting is that the FBI considers them to be the first terrorist organization to emerge from the American left. Now, this group was mostly made up of college-age kids, and they actually mostly met through a prison outreach program that was organized by a left-wing group trying to educate inmates and to prepare them for life after prison. But obviously, things didn't really go according to that plan. That is so interesting because it's like they met trying to do such like a great thing Mm -hmm. for others, but then they're kidnapping people. Right? It's such a confusing dichotomy of the morals that they're saying they have behind the group, but then also the actions they're taking, like they just don't align. And I think we'll Mm -hmm. see that more and more throughout the story. So as I mentioned, most of the SLA members actually met because they were volunteers in this outreach program where they were trying to help educate prisoners. But through this process, they actually became really close with several of the prisoners who would then later go on to also become members of the SLA. One really important person in this story is Donald DeFreeze. He was a prisoner who was involved in this outreach program, and he later became one of the founding members of the SLA group. Throughout the Patricia Hearst kidnapping, he also acted as the spokesperson and leader of the group. Interesting. So to put it in really simple terms, this SLA group mostly wanted a communist kind of government. They were horrified by the Vietnam War and the blatant racism that they saw, especially within the prisons. They hated to see that there were wealthy people living in mansions with plenty, while there were other people that were also starving at the same time. Yeah. Because of these ideas, they founded the Symbionese Liberation Army. Now, the group came up with the word symbionese because it's inspired by a biology term, symbiosis. And it typically is thought to be a word that describes separate organisms living in partnership while sharing one body. But, like, this is literally parasitism also. Like, parasites are underneath the category of symbiosis. So just as someone who, like, has taken some biology, I don't find it to be a super inspirational term. No, it literally made me think of like in school when you learn about like parasites and there's like mutual benefiting. Yeah. Only one benefiting. Gross. Don't really enjoy that word. Audrey, that is such good memory because there's just like different categories of symbiosis and that's what they Mm -hmm. are. They're like, oh, are they both benefiting? Is one taking from the other? Like what's the relationship? Yeah. I just thought that was kind of an interesting background for why they came up with symbionese. It's not a word. But the meaning behind all of this to them was that they really wanted all races, genders, and ages to fight together for the opportunity to live in peace. I don't think that anyone would be super against this idea, 
but unfortunately, the SLA didn't seem to quite understand what the word peaceful meant. I was going to say one of the keywords we need to touch on with that is fight. Yeah, fight also not super peaceful. Yeah, for them to even describe it as fight, Mm -hmm. I feel like just kind of goes to show what maybe possibly is going to play out in the future. Yeah, and I think that their terminology in all of this is super telling. Like, they're calling themselves an army. They're talking about fighting. They referred to Patricia as a prisoner of war. Oh, yeah. They really think that they're in a war. Yeah. It's kind of strange. All of it's weird. Right? It's really interesting, like, look into the start of what really is a terrorist organization in the end. So one of the founding members of the SLA, his name was Russ Little, and he grew up in Florida with a really normal childhood. He had wanted to be an astronaut, and he actually went to college to study engineering in the hopes that he could maybe one day make it to space. I feel like that's a pretty normal childhood, normal education type stuff. Right, like it's very classic, like all-American kind of energy. But in college, Russ was taken in by the anti-war movement. So this really caught his attention. And if you think about the time period of the 70s, these kids grew up hearing about World War II, and they were told this story of how all the nations worked together to essentially save the world. But then when they got older, they see what the U.S. was doing in Vietnam, and they were horrified. And they really felt like it needed to be stopped. So this is what's ultimately behind this anti-war movement. And at the time, it was huge, especially on college campuses. And one protest at UC Berkeley was actually so intense that they shut the school down for, like, days. Oh, man. Now, this is also the time when Kent State happened, and ultimately, Mm. that escalated everything else. So, for anyone who's not familiar, I really can't go into the whole story of Kent State because there are so many pieces, but to give you a really brief summary, in 1970, there were students at Kent State University that were hosting a peace rally to oppose the Vietnam War and its expansion into Cambodia. In recent years and months, there had been escalating protests with vandalism, fires in the street, and the mayor even declared a state of emergency several days before. Over several days, there were rumors of threats that businesses would be burnt down, one of the campus buildings was actually set on fire, and ultimately the National Guard was called in. Now, the protests continued, and during a protest on May 4th, the National Guard opened fire against the unarmed students protesting on campus. Four students were killed and nine were injured. It's really horrific and heartbreaking, and like I mentioned, this is a super short version. There are so many pieces that I can't go into, but regardless, the shooting at Kent State really escalated every other anti-war protest. It does really make sense as to why that would be a catalyst for all of these other groups to be, Mm -hmm. like, like, want to go more intense. Yeah, it did, like, escalate everything, and I kind of get the the army perspective at that point when, like, you're actually getting shot against as a student at a protest, and, like, the students were throwing rocks and things at the National Guard, so there were other pieces to this, 
But regardless, the students didn't have guns. So the fact that they were shot and killed is insane. Something tragic like that makes sense why other groups are like, okay, now we need to protect ourselves. Yeah, they're like, we're not safe. All of this obviously escalated everything. And I did watch a documentary by PBS that covered the Patty Hearst kidnapping. And in the documentary, they actually had clips of video from other protests at other colleges. And in one video, the police were shouting at students during a protest, threatening to fire at them like they did at Kent State. So, like, this was happening all the time. What the hell? Yeah, it was very real and very scary. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be a college student. No, it's terrifying. Yeah, especially at that time. So, like, even obviously the kids, like, all got the message that this could happen to them, but then to be at a protest and told by an officer, like, oh, we'll fire at you, just makes it all so much worse. So, these type of events are really what lit the fire in a lot of SLA members because many of them were college students around the time of these protests. In March 1973, the U.S. pulled out of Vietnam, and with that, a lot of students were done with the anti-war movement. But some felt that nothing had actually changed, and they really believed that the government was still being run by murderers. So at this time, a lot of vigilante political films became very popular. The typical storyline is that there's a country in need and that a vigilante would fight for justice to take care of impoverished and suppressed groups. Obviously, this kind of stuff is super inspiring in an anti-war movement kind of a group, and it's actually where several members of the SLA met. Question. Mm -hmm. Were these, like, superhero movies? Okay, yeah, they're basically, like, civilian superhero movies. Okay. Yeah, but it's not even that they have superpowers. It's just that, like, there was a small group or a person who took a stand against the government and saved the people. It's, like, a narrative that was being portrayed at the time. Okay. And so one group of future SLA members met during a viewing of one of these vigilante political films. The names of these members were Russ, who I mentioned, Willie, Emily, Bill, and Joe. Now, Willie was thought to be the catalyst to a lot of things because he brought a lot of the people together, and he was actually the person that was involved in the prison outreach program, which is where they met several other SLA members. So because of Willie, he recruited a lot of these other people into the prison outreach program, and they became involved in it as well. Now, because of their distrust in the government, some of the members of this group really started to feel like U.S. prisons were basically Vietnam. They felt like every black person in prison was in some ways a political prisoner. And there's definitely some truth in all of this. There's a lot of systemic racism, and it's a problem that still needs to be solved to this day. But the SLA took everything even more extreme when they moved on from thoughts of people being falsely imprisoned and instead started talking about what they could do to help someone escape. Not the right way to really go about it. Not really. Several of the SLA members met through this prison program and... Importantly, this is where they met Donald DeFries, who I mentioned earlier as the spokesperson for the SLA. Now, through this outreach program, DeFries became involved with the group. Now, to give you a little bit of background on DeFries, 
He grew up in an abusive home, and he dropped out of school and ran away from home at the age of 14. Because he was on his own at such a young age, he had a lot of trouble with the law throughout his life. But as an adult, he was really doing his best. He had been married with kids, and he even had a full-time job that he was working consistently. Okay. But unfortunately, this job wasn't enough to provide for his family. So he also started stealing in an effort to provide for them. Throughout his life, DeFries was arrested several times for car theft, firing a gun in his home, carrying homemade bombs, kidnapping, and bank robbery. So I feel like there's a little bit of a difference between like stealing something for your family because they need food Mm -hmm. and firing a gun in your house, stealing cars, and kidnapping. Yeah. And um, carrying homemade bombs. Yeah. Like, mm, I don't know if that's really helping your family out much. Yeah. I'm not sure how that helps them. I'm really not. Yeah. But the SLA members really felt that DeFreeze had not been given opportunities in life and that it was the circumstances of his life and environment that really forced him into crime and ultimately into prison. It was his last offense of bank robbery that ultimately led DeFreeze to be incarcerated in a California prison, which is where he ultimately met several of the students who would later be involved in the SLA. In December of 1972, DeFries was transferred to Soledad Prison, and he had actually been trained in boiler repair. Because of this, he was given minimum security status, and with this low security status, DeFries was actually able to escape from prison, and he went to hide mm-hmm. with several of his friends in California. Now, I tried to find the full story on his escape because I always want to know how everything happened, but it wasn't very clearly covered in any of the articles that I read. From what I could find out, it seems like because of his boiler repair training, DeFries was actually allowed off of prison ground so he could go and fix boilers and actually like help the community, and it sounds like he escaped during one of these trips. So almost like a work release program? Yes, exactly. So this is me reading between the lines. It could be wrong, but I just couldn't find any clear coverage of it. I do think that it makes sense, though, because several months later, in August of 1973, another inmate escaped prison to join the SLA. His name was Thero Wheeler, and he was in charge of maintaining a baseball field outside of the prison. And that day, he just walked away. So it seems like this work release kind of a program was definitely involved in both of their escapes. Okay, in their defense, I'd probably walk away too. Oh yeah, I could totally see that. Like, I know you'd be living in fear Mm -hmm. and like hiding the rest of your life, but I don't know. It'd just be so easy to walk. It would be so tempting. So these prison escapes really gave the SLA some momentum because they viewed the prisoners as being falsely convicted and they wanted them to have their freedom. After DeFries's escape, Willie, one of the SLA members, took DeFries to live with some of his friends that he had met through the prison volunteer program. Their names were Nancy and Ms. Moon, which I should also mention that when people joined the SLA, they got to come up with their own name. So Ms. Moon was like not her birth name, but it is what she went by. Real quick, mm-hmm. if you had a choice to come up with your own name in this group, would you really settle on Nancy? 
Okay, I think Nancy was her biological name. So okay. it's confusing because in the articles, they're referring to some by biological names, or like, you know, given names, and then others by their, like, made-up SLA names. And I don't even know. Mm-hmm. It made it very confusing. For a while, I thought I was talking about two different people, and then I realized they were the same person. <laughs> But Nancy and Ms. Moon are different than each other. Okay. So there's that. So after DeFries's escape, he, Nancy, and Ms. Moon were actually the three official founders of the SLA. And shortly after founding the group, some of those other members, including the individuals who met at the movie, also joined. So they also had Russ, Joe, Willie, and Emily join the SLA. In most of the media coverage, DeFries is portrayed as the leader of the group, but some members have actually had conflicting reports of that, so it's not entirely clear. But they ultimately had a really very Robin Hood kind of complex, and they thought they were going to be able to take from the rich and give to the poor. I feel like that never works out. Right? They think that they can, like, make this work, and it's like, maybe just go volunteer at a nonprofit. Yeah. Like, I feel like we've seen it fail so many times that it doesn't make sense to try again. Right? And these vigilante and Robin Hood films are fictional for a reason. Yeah. Because it doesn't really work in real life. So they had this plan to take from the rich and give to the poor, but they really didn't know how they were actually going to pull it off. However, they did know that they were going to need weapons. So members of the SLA group bought guns and started practicing at the shooting range as if they were preparing to go into battle. Never good. Not a good sign. It's very bad. In November of 1973, the SLA finally decided what action they were going to take. They had decided that they were going to attack and kill the newly elected Oakland school system superintendent, whose name was Marcus Foster. I have to say that this decision makes no sense whatsoever. Killing a school superintendent is not going to feed the poor. And obviously, murder will never make sense. But this is especially confusing because Marcus Foster seemed to be the kind of person that the SLA should have been fighting for, not against. Yeah, and being a superintendent at a school, oftentimes they're the ones that don't get a whole lot of money. Yeah. Because not many funds are allotted to schools, and I'm guessing that the Oakland school system was not the most affluent area. No. So I'm guessing he was working with a lot of underprivileged children and students, and so most likely was more on the SLA side than Than the other side. Against what they were fighting for. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So Marcus Foster seems like such an incredible human being. He was the first black superintendent in history for Oakland. He had spent most of his career as a teacher and a principal until he got the position of superintendent. And by all accounts, he was really inspirational to his students. He started school funds to promote education excellence and diversity, and he was fighting to improve education within schools that had large minority populations and that had large populations of students struggling with poverty. He was even given the Philadelphia Award in 1969, which is an award given to a single citizen each year to recognize individuals who had made a positive impact on the community. The last person that should be murdered for this. Yes, yes. He was a good man. Mm -hmm. 
their logic doesn't make sense it to me right now. It doesn't make any sense at all. But all of that didn't stop the SLA. The reason that they targeted Marcus Foster is because the school was implementing an identification card system. And the reason that they were putting this in place is because they wanted to prevent non-student drug dealers from being on campus. So by having ID cards, they'd be able to actually verify what students belong on campus and what people shouldn't be on campus. To me, sounds like not a bad thing to implement. Right? I think it's good. Mm -hmm. We had ID cards. I think it's so common now. The SLA had misinterpreted this ID card situation as a way to regulate and potentially discriminate against students. DeFries, for some reason, was convinced that Marcus Foster was working with the police and that the ID cards would be used to target students and especially certain student groups. But ultimately, none of that was actually true. On November 6, 1973, Marcus Foster attended a school board meeting along with his deputy, Robert Blackburn. Several members of the SLA were waiting outside of the building with guns. They opened fire when Marcus and Robert left the building, and Marcus Foster was murdered while his deputy, Robert Blackburn, was wounded. The SLA member, Miss Moon, was the one that actually pulled the trigger that killed Foster, and Nancy was actually supposed to be the one that shot Blackburn, but I guess she didn't do a very good job, so DeFreeze did it instead. Um, what the hell? Yeah. This, I think, is the piece of this case that doesn't get highlighted enough. Like, people talk about the Patricia Hearst kidnapping because it was sensationalized, but I think the murder of Marcus Foster needs to be heard more. I was really hoping that you would tell me that they're actually terrible shots, they completely missed them, and that he survived. Right? I wish that's what I could tell you. It sucks because in most articles, this is just like a sentence or two. It just gets Mm -hmm. skimmed over so quickly and they don't talk about all the good work that Marcus Foster did. And he really did great things for the community. That's why I decided to do this as two episodes, actually, so that I could take time and like actually talk about this case more. Mm -hmm. So after the murder, the SLA sent a letter to the Chronicle taking ownership of the murder of Marcus Foster and detailing the crime. In the details, they included information about the type of bullet that was used, which was actually very specific. They used cyanide-tipped bullets. This was a piece of information that hadn't been released to the public, so it really did confirm that they were responsible for the crime. I didn't know that you could even get those. I didn't either. Then it makes me even more worried for Robert, who just got wounded, because then he also got cyanide poisoned. It's messed up. This is actually the first time that the world heard about the SLA. Until this time, they'd really just been this group that was holed up and had only had ideas between each other. But now with the murder of Marcus Foster and the publishing of their letter in the Chronicle, they became known by the public. Everyone in the community was confused by the murder of Marcus Foster, and even some SLA members were really confused by it. Russ, one of the founding members, was at a loss for why they would target Marcus Foster. The idea that they killed a man over a misunderstanding shook their faith in the SLA, and even now, members of the SLA talk about how they have their own kids in high school and how they want them to have ID cards in the schools to keep the students safe. Yeah. Two months after the murder of Marcus Foster, 
the SLA was involved in another big event, but this one was not planned. SLA members Russ and Joe were stopped by a traffic cop. They had SLA weapons and propaganda in their possession, and they did not cooperate with the police. Joe opened fire against the police officers, but eventually they were both arrested and taken to jail. Joe and Russ were charged with the murder of Marcus Foster, and the SLA became known as a group of armed and dangerous revolutionaries. Joe was thought to be the person who would get weapons, and Russ was more of a logistical support person, so he was close to DeFreeze, and the police assumed that he would have been involved in the decision to kill Marcus Foster. But Russ had consistently disagreed with this accusation throughout his incarceration. Everyone knew that the group was really close, so when Joe and Russ were arrested, everyone else went into hiding, and they were trying to find a way that they could get Joe and Russ released from prison. This is actually when the idea of kidnapping came to mind, because for some reason, the SLA thought that they could basically do a prisoner trade and trade a hostage for Joe and Russ's freedom. I don't think that's how it works. Yeah, I don't think that's a thing. They spent a lot of time gathering information, and they were trying to find the perfect person to target. It had to be someone whose friends and family had some kind of power, and with that, they started looking at students at Berkeley. They decided to do this because Emily Harris worked in the registrar's office, so she had access to a list of all of the students there. They also had files on the heads of all of the big corporations, and they were looking for someone to match across the two files. This is how they found Patricia Hearst and how they chose to target her and her family. I'm sorry, they didn't want ID cards at the high school, but they're okay looking through all of the registered students. Mm-hmm. Okay, makes sense, right? Yeah, it's so messed up. Now, this actually brings us back to the beginning of this episode. As I mentioned, that on February 4th in 1974, members of the SLA actually took action in this plan and kidnapped Patricia Hearst. Now, the SLA had planned this kidnapping in so much detail that witnesses reported that the kidnappers didn't even have to speak to each other. They just knew exactly what they were each going to do. Immediately after the kidnapping, and for weeks to follow, the media camped out outside of the Hearst Mansion. They were trying to learn any updates about the case. And after four days of silence, the SLA finally sent the letter that I mentioned earlier. It said, The United Federate Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army, armed with cyanide-loaded weapons, served an arrest warrant upon Patricia Campbell Hearst. All communications with this court must be published in full, in all newspapers, and in all other forms of media. Failure to do so will endanger the safety of the prisoner. Should any attempt be made by the authorities to rescue the prisoner or to harm any of the SLA and its forces, then the prisoner shall be executed. In capital letters underneath this message, it said, Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. This letter was the beginning of a 19-month whirlwind of media coverage, letters, recordings, robberies, and bombings. The SLA had the attention of the entire nation, and next week, we'll go into the details of everything that happened after the kidnapping of Patricia Hearst. I'm still just in shock by everything that you just said. Isn't it such a strange story? 
They're like, we're here for peace. We want everyone to get along. I have a warrant for the rest of Patricia. We're going to bomb you. Like, yeah. What? They just conflict so much. Like, they have this claimed ideology. And then when you actually look at their actions, it's like, these don't align. Yeah, it's like they want to do the bad things and they use this, like, what could be really positive ideology and beliefs to support it, Mm -hmm. even though they don't really align, it feels like. Yeah, like they really thought they were going to battle to make this stuff happen. Yeah, it's frustrating when there's actual wars and stuff going on, and then all of the public and stuff are focused on something like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really rough. Um, I need to shout out my sources before I forget. Oh, yeah. Okay, so what's interesting is that the FBI has actually published most of the case resources on this Patricia Hearst kidnapping. And so there's a website, it's FBI.gov, and we'll post the link and everything. But you can go in there and they have most of the files that were actually used in the court case. So that was wild. Um, I also watched the PBS documentary. It was called Gorilla, The Taking of Patty Hearst. Um, Other than that, I used a website called This Day in History from history.com. And then, of course, I used some good old Wikipedia for more information about the Patricia Hearst kidnapping and also the murder of Marcus Foster. So that is that. Very interesting. I can't wait to hear your next part. Yeah, it's not really a positive note to end on, but it is more of a cliffhanger note. Yeah. So I'll give you that. But I know this is already kind of long, so I don't want to keep anyone for too long. But thank you so much for listening. I hope you come back next week to hear the second half. Yeah. Stay wild, stay weird, but not like that. No. At all. Stay less wild and less weird. (laughs) 